Let's play a little game. It's called Hooray for Hollywood! I was having a look at the top 50 movie quotes of all time the other day. Not particularly scientific, but let's see how many you remember. I'm just going to give you the top five ahead of our next item. Don't worry, it'll all make perfect sense in time. Here we go. At number five. Elementary, my dear Watson. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from 1939. At number four. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. From Dead Poets Society, 1989. At number three. I'm the king of the world. Remember that one. Titanic, 1997. Number two. There's no place like home. From The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy clicked her heels, 1939. And in the number one spot, I can't believe it, but anyway, here we go. May the force be with you. <laughs> Excuse me. Star Wars 1977. I have to say, I was genuinely surprised when the quote I'm going to play for you now did not appear in pole position. Because in 1975, it scared the life out of me. And I'll bet I wasn't alone. You're going to need a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger boat? Chief Brody, he wasn't wrong. I was afraid to have a bath after seeing that movie. <laughs> Come to think of it, I'm not sure if I was more scared by the shark in Jaws or the music, but despite the horror and terror it inflicted on somebody as innocent and as impressionable as I was in 1975, it didn't put me off them. Sharks are among the most fascinating and compelling of all creatures on Earth. Whether in film, an aquarium or in the wild, we find them as mesmerising as they are formidable. And when we think of one, we probably imagine a great white shark or a tiger shark. But can fearsome tales divert from a complex and secretive story which goes back some 450 million years and has survived five mass extinctions? What, for example, did sharks look like in their early evolutionary history? What makes them such effective predators? What would our oceans be like without them? These questions and others are explored in a new book. It's called The Lives of Sharks and it examines shark physiology, anatomy, behaviour, ecology, evolution, as well as conservation and the impact of human activity on shark populations. Daniel Abel is a co-author and also professor of marine science at the Coastal Carolina University, from where he spoke with our own Dr. Richard Collins earlier. 
I'm in coastal South Carolina, which is in the southeast Atlantic coast of the U.S., in a lovely little bucolic setting called Polly's Island. Um, there is a storm churning a few hundred miles off our coast, and it's creating some rough weather out here. And you know, I had to cancel one of my cruises because of that uh, cruise schedule actually for today and for tomorrow. Um, but otherwise, it's a very beautiful time of year here. The tourists are leaving. Uh, the fall weather is kicking in, and the sharks are plentiful in the two ecosystems uh, where I study them. Daniel, congratulations on a beautiful book which does a great deal to dispel many of the myths about sharks. Sharks, it seems to me, have an image problem. For one thing, we're inclined to think that all sharks are very big, the top of the food chain, apex predators, the sort of Ivan the Terribles of the sea rushing around, gobbling everything up, mindless, brutish, terrible creatures. And also we think that they threaten us in some way. People will sunbathe and risk getting melanomas, but yet they will not be afraid to go into the water lest a shark be in there and eat them. And you booked us a great deal to dispel those things. How big is the normal, the typical shark? Well, well, first of all, thank you, Richard, for that outstanding introduction. You pretty much summarized the book. Um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this magnificent group of beasts. Yeah, so people think, uh, when they think of a shark, they think of a great white shark or a tiger shark, perhaps a reef shark. And those aren't typical sharks. Those are large sharks. But the fact is, um, there's about 550 or so species of sharks, a number that grows every year. And more than two-thirds of them um, are no larger than three and a half feet or a meter. So most sharks are small. And, and the other myth is that most sharks are living in the shallow coastal waters when, in fact, over half the species live in an environment that most of us will never see, which is the deep sea. It's a successful formula that they invented 500 million years ago or something like that. They decided on a particular technology. And is it largely the same since then? Has it changed much? You know, that, that's a great question. I, you know, I teach a biology of sharks course here at Coastal Carolina University, and I just posed that question to my students. The way I posed it was, are sharks living fossils? And, you know, a living fossil is basically an animal or a plant, an organism that's basically unchanged from its early evolutionary form. And the answer to the question that you posed and to, to the question I just said is yes and no, that early in their evolutionary history, they settled on a body form and a predatory lifestyle that worked for them and you know, evolution doesn't tinker with things that work. And so it's persisted to this day. But no, there have been some changes. The, the jaws, for example, of sharks have loosened a little bit, enabling them to have that big gape that we see on some of the television shows and movies. Um, and their fins have become a little more mobile. They can turn a little bit better than they, they, they used to be just very rigid in early evolutionary history. So, yeah, so sharks are evolutionary old group, but they're advanced in many ways. Now, there's a great competition going on between them, who are cartilaginous. They have cartilage, the kind of stuff of the outer ear is made of kind of flexible plasticky material or the bulb of the nose, against the bony fish. The bony fish are going along parallel to them. They both survived, but is it better to be bony than to be cartilaginous if you have the option of being born as a fish? 
So would I rather be a, a shark or a bony fish? I think most people would want to be uh, at the top of the food chain. Um, you know, there are 38,000 kinds of bony fish, and anybody who studies fish is in awe of bony fish. The color, shape, sizes, just like on a coral reef. So sharks, it, it's you know slightly under a 550 species, are a less biodiverse group, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But uh, that doesn't mean they aren't important ecologically, if at least as important, if not more important. And the diversity among those 541 species is pretty immense. One piece of technology the bony fish have developed and the sharks haven't is the swim bladder. The swim bladder is a very clever device, it seems to me. You can adjust your body density effectively depending on where you are. If you're descending deep, you can put out more or put out less gas into the swim bladder. And so you can be you have a more restful existence. Now, the shark can't do that. And I've read somewhere that they have to keep swimming all the time because they'll sink to the bottom if they don't. And if you are sleeping on the bottom trying to rest, you'll have to have a current flowing over your gills, otherwise you won't have enough oxygen. Are these myths valid? In part. I mean, if you're an oceanic shark, like an oceanic white tip or a blue shark, yeah, then you must keep swimming because they have muscle-bound bodies. And, you know, sharks are slightly envious of bony fish and having that internal balloon. In fact, there's a single shark that has decided evolutionarily to emulate bony fish. And I'm talking about a sand tiger. In fact, I read that a small-toothed sand tiger was recently found washed up on Irish surf shores. And this is a fish that's more more commonly in the in Mediterranean. And this group actually takes gulps of air from the surface and has an airzatz swim bladder. So there are benthic sharks, about 40% of benthic sharks they don't require you know, a current to be flowing past them. They have gill musculature, and benthic means bottom-associated, and so many of them are nocturnal. They sleep during the day like the horn shark or the Port Jackson shark, and they're able to pump sufficient water over their gills to oxygenate. So, so you know, for some sharks, yeah, they're, they're not neutrally buoyant. No shark is neutrally buoyant except a deep-sea shark that is almost neutrally buoyant, but for most of them, they're heavier than water because of their, mu- their muscle band, um, and they need to, to swim in order to, uh, to not sink. Is not having a swim bladder holding them back? The animal with the swim bladder can venture into places where the one without it can't. It is able to roam widely and exploit different habitats and so on and so forth. Is the shark more constrained by the fact that it hasn't this diving suit air tank thing available to it? Well, it's certainly limited some of the niches that a shark can speciate into, uh, like on a coral reef. I'm sure you've been in a coral reef before and seen the immense diversity of forms occupying practically any livable space there in really small forms. And so not having a swim bladder means that, you know, a shark can't be small. And second of all, it can't hover. And so all these beautiful spaces that damselfish and angelfish and other bony fishes have occupied aren't available to to sharks. Now, on the other hand, sharks went in a different direction. And again, only 550 species compared to 38,000, but ecologically important and just a different overall lifestyle and equally successful in their own right. Well, we shouldn't compare them too critically. After all, the sharks tend to be close to the top of the food chain. And as you go up, the 
possibilities for diversity probably go down. Now, the other great uh, innovation of the sharks is internal fertilization. The bony fish, for the most part, I think almost in all cases, are external fertilizers. This is a very radical change between the two and the internal fertilization generates a different approach to young and to the rearing of young than does the other. Would you develop that a bit for us? Certainly. One of the key characteristics of the group to which sharks belong, the cartilaginous fishes, is a modification of their pelvic fins, the paired fins on the underside towards the rear, called claspers. And Aristotle actually noticed these these early on, um, although he thought they were used to hold on to the female. They're only in males. And they're used to hold on to the female and they would fertilize the eggs externally. Instead, sharks fertilize internally. And what that means then is that there's more hospitable place for the development of the early embryos. And rather than depositing 3 million or 4 million eggs or so like a pollock or a bluefin tuna, um, sharks have fewer young. So it's a completely different life history strategy that, that would produce larger young that are more capable of fending for themselves, but only a few of them. And this has worked to the disadvantage in, in contemporary you know, society where human insults can drastically reduce population sizes. And without the ability to have millions of eggs, sharks can't recover very quickly. So sharks in general have very slow life history characteristics, and a lot of them are associated with internal fertilization. That female sharks that carry their young are bigger than than males. Um, they're they're slow growing, they're long lived, um, and they produce these young that that they carry around with them um, for deep sea sharks potentially three years. I mean, it's a really long gestation period. Um, but for most sharks, it's you know it's a year, and and they don't even reproduce every year. So. Bony fish, again, there, you know, there are a few bony fish that, you know, if you have an aquarium and you have some mollies or guppies, uh, they fertilize internally um, and then they produce small live young. And then there's a few sharks. They all fertilize internally. Not all are born live from the mother. Some, um, like the horn sharks and the cat sharks, actually lay eggs. But in all cases, the young are born at a more advanced stage than uh, bony fish are. So in a funny, odd sort of way, they are more like us. We produce a few young and we look after them, whereas lots of creatures produce a vast number of young in the hope that the odd one will make it through. Now, the sharks are a bit like us. They seem to mind their, at least when they're on board the mother. So it's a curious uh, reflection that this creature that we consider so alien has this parallel with us. So what would you say? Yes, in fact, uh, you know, when I, when I give lectures on uh, ecology and life history of sharks, I, you know, I say w they have more mammal-like characteristics. Um, that, you know, a, a shark it probably is closer to an elephant in terms of its life history characteristics than it is to a to a bony fish. And you know, it's an interesting parallel that, that there's no parental care in sharks once the animal is born. But there's an enormous amount of parental care when they're having to carry around the young for one, two, or even three years. So that's a yeah, very, very interesting comparison with, with humans. 
Now, when we come to the mental side of sharks, um, they seem to do rather badly. I know that lemon sharks have been trained to press buttons and things, and there are one or two other examples of sharks. They can learn a little, but they will never produce the complete works of Shakespeare equivalent in the fish world or a theory of relativity or anything like that. They seem to be very limited in that regard. Small brains, limited in what they can and develop and do is that a fair judgment um well i mean you also describe me as well i'll never produce the, the works of shakespeare but now, no they don't have small brains they actually have relatively large brains right in the middle of the you know of the vertebrate range of brain sizes but they're not the the, the parts of the brain that are large are those associated with the sensory environment so associated with with vision or, or smell or hearing so they so their brain size is not that small but on the other hand they they aren't capable of higher order kinds of behaviors, um, but they exhibit surprisingly complex behaviors. Um, You know, they have different personalities. Uh, People who dive with tiger sharks will tell you that there's some that are aggressive and some that are shy. And having a mixture of these personalities uh, may be protective in the long run. It protects shyer sharks from from dangers of risk-taking. So they, you know, not necessarily a big tiger shark, but another kind of shark that might be exposed to more predators. And sharks are the biggest predators of other sharks. And it rewards bolder, bolder sharks with food. So it's interesting that, that there should be a mix of personalities. And then cognition or learning, as you pointed out to, um, does occur. And to me, the, the best example, um, which incorporates my favorite musical genre and my favorite, one of my favorite sharks, is the Port Jackson shark. And in one set of experiments, it learned to bite at bubbles emanating from an underwater aerator when it heard jazz music. So they are fairly cultural. So you had to play jazz music. If you played any other kind of music, it wouldn't respond at all. It was demonstrated this, statistically demonstrated that this is the case, that if you play a certain type of music, a certain sound, they will do this, they will eat the bubbles, but not if you don't. Is that true? Well, I have to give a cap. This isn't work I did, so this is this is basically a research that I read about. It's it, apparently they just learned to recognize jazz. Uh, however, they could not distinguish it from from blues. Apparently, so there there were somewhat dilettantes in the uh, in the musical realm. Still, it's an amazing development. Now, the other side of learning, for instance, the two best known sharks where I live are the basking shark and of course the great white which Derek and I went to see on two occasions and went into the cages with them and that these are the best known sharks in this part of the world they both indulge it seems in huge migrations I think you mentioned in the book a migration from Africa from Dire Island all the way to Australia and back by a white shark now that must require memory uh, uh, learning of various kinds it can't just be a random thing. Surely they have learning in another sphere to what we think of as learning. Yeah, I would, no, I would agree with that. And, and but they also navigate. I mean, they've you know that's a learn, maybe a learned or maybe an innate behavior. But they're 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 using the Earth's geomagnetic field. At least that's the the best guess. One of my former students, Brian Keller, um, demonstrated that with bonnethead sharks for one of the first times that they that they're able to to navigate based on sensing the Earth's geomagnetic field. You know, sharks sharks migrate for a variety of reasons. Uh, along our coast, we study them. They migrate for a food reason 
reasons and also for, for you know to for environmental reasons to get into either warm or cold water depending on the sharks but yes it's it's clearly requires some sort of processing that we might not give them credit for to be able to to make those enormous migrations that if you look at tracks of tagged animals seem to be along the same pathways. There's, you know, there are some wrong way sharks and we, we've tagged a bunch of them and, and most of them will go one way and one will go the other. But, um, but for the most part, the, you know, the migrations are stereotypical. Is this more a reflection on them? They don't need to drive all the way to Australia for a I think of the energy demand of going all the way to Australia and coming back. Surely the budget doesn't justify it in terms of the number of fish, the extra number of fish you will get by going to Australia for a while and coming back. Is it that they fail to realize that there's much better resources, much nearer that they could exploit? Is it a reflection on them rather than a, a virtue that we see in them? That opens up a wide variety of questions about why. I mean, you know, scientists don't typically ask the question why, but we can do it, you know, in, in this sense. Uh, why an animal does anything it does. And a typical white shark that weighs about two. 2,000 pounds, about 1,000 kilograms, eats about 40, 40 pounds of prey a day, about 18, 18 kilos of prey a day. You know, it doesn't have to do it every day. It can store up, uh, you know, the, the value to that shark of migrating that far is apparently known only by the shark that, that did it. There may be alternate pathways. And, uh, you know, it also points out questions about about the evolution of behaviors and structures. And, you know, we, we can't always understand the selective forces that led an animal in one direction versus another. So I guess all that is, is a long way of saying um, I'm really not sure if there's a better way for the white shark to do what it, what it did. Daniel, it's been wonderful talking to you and thank you very much for a superb book. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you and, and maybe I look forward to meeting in person down here where you can see the wondrous Winyah Bay ecosystem and our beautiful sandbar sharks. Oh, it'll be wonderful. Wonderful indeed. Thank you very much indeed to Richard Collins. 